1: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, A collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today. On the air, on radio.
0: What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. This is our special guest, United States Senator John McCain. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Now I'm going to ask you some God. questions. Thank you. Thank you. Could I just, uh, by saying thank all of you for coming today, it's a special treat for me to be in Philadelphia. Uh, as many of you know, I attended the United States Naval Academy, and many of my happiest, <laughs> many of my happiest memories were to come here while I was in school there to the Army-Navy game, where we both midshipmen and cadets were treated with tremendous hospitality and warmth by the people of philadelphia a long long tradition that we have maintained for more than i believe a hundred years and uh, tomorrow i'll be attending the game one reason being that my son is in his first year at the naval academy and uh, he's doing far better than i did i'm happy to tell you And uh, I'd also like to mention of many wonderful people who are here today, Pat Kochi, who's here. Pat, thank you for all you have done to motivate so many people for for so long. So I thank all of you for being here today, and we look forward to a great Navy victory tomorrow. (laughs) And uh, at the same time, it's really a transcendent event in the history of sporting events, the sportsmanship and the camaraderie that will exist both before and after the game uh, will be pretty incredible. Before the the uh, game tomorrow, uh, General Schwarzkopf and I do a little dialogue that's going to be on on CBS before the game starts about how, uh, how uh, great the tradition is, but for four quarters we fight very fiercely against each other. It's a nice little thing and I was privileged to be anywhere with General Schwarzkopf. Thanks Mike, thank you all for, and thanks for coming. <laughs> there you go.
0: Senator, this, this is the, uh, the Oprah portion of the program. You ready? You give it all up in the first paragraph. I don't believe in destiny. We're not born to become one thing or another, left to follow helplessly a course that was charted for us by some unseen hand, a mysterious alignment of the stars that pulls us in certain direction, bestowing happiness on some and misfortune on others. That's the John McCain philosophy.
1: It is. It is, and the people we write about um, are people who, many of whom had wonderful and privileged uh, uh, advantages uh, as they grew up, and there's others who had uh, very, very difficult early periods of their lives and were able to develop the characteristics which we describe which then determines one character. For example, I, I just flew back from London yesterday, and if you visit London, there's a wonderful museum called the Churchill Museum, and it's next to the bunker that Churchill was in in the beginning, dark days of World War II, when the Germans were bombing uh, every night. Churchill was very sick as a child. He had a mother whose behavior was terrible, a father who treated him very cruelly. They sent him away to a, one of these quote, public schools at the age of nine, and uh, you read some of his letters to his parents as a very young boy, begging them to come and see, the, to, just to come and see him or allow him to come to a, for a visit, and yet he obviously ended up as one of the great uh, figures of the 20th century. Wilma Rudolph, who we write about, was so sick as a child with polio, she couldn't, not only couldn't run, she couldn't walk, and she ended up as I'm sure that most of you are aware, as an Olympic champion and a great, great American hero. So we, we try to make the point that it's not whether you have the advantages or disadvantages, it's the characteristics that you choose which determine your destiny.
0: Fool's names and fool's faces are often seen <laughs> in
1: public places. My mother, my 93-year-old mother, that's a quote from her. Uh, She's quite a remarkable lady. The first book that Mark Salter and I wrote is autobiographical, and it begins with when I when I was born, and ends up ends the day that I left prison in Hanoi. And one of the uh, parts of the book, uh, one of the, I described when I'd be taken from one cell to another or to interrogations, I would yell obscenities at the guards because we were not allowed to speak to each other, and I thought that would help my. Uh, my fellow prisoner's uh, morale. That book, uh, this is about three, four years ago, the book was excerpted in the Washingtonian magazine and that part of the book was excerpted and the phone rang one day and my mother said, Johnny, and I said, yes. She said, I just read that excerpt in the magazine from your book. And I said, well, what'd you think? She said, I'm coming over there and wash your mouth out with soap. <laughs> I said, Mom, these were bad guys. They were terrible people. She said, under no circumstances did I ever teach you to use language like that.
0: One of the individuals, uh, Senator McCain, that you write about in the book, and I'm, I'm so glad that you did, we've spoken so much about him uh, on our program on the Big Talker 1210, is Pat Tillman. You never had the opportunity to, you watched him play, but you never had the opportunity to meet him uh, before his tragic passing. Is that right?
1: I never met Pat Tillman. I watched him play football on many, many occasions, both as an ASU Sun Devil and then later on as a member of the Arizona Cardinals. And uh, one of the great regrets of my life is that I never met Pat. I've had the privilege of meeting his wife, who he was married to for a very brief period of time, and his parents and his brother, who also enlisted with him at the same time in the United States Army. I know that you're very familiar with his story and how he gave up a multi-million dollar contract with the National Football League to join the United States Army, trained as a ranger, fought in Iraq, and then was killed tragically in Afghanistan in what turned out later to be a friendly fire uh, situation, which, by the way, in no way detracted from his heroic behavior. and. Uh, He'll always be a a great hero of mine and he represents the very best in America and he would be the last person to ever say that he was an American hero. By the way, Mike, you might be interested. He never gave a press conference, he never gave an interview after he joined the United States Army because he felt that he hadn't done anything that would in any way deserve him from being distinguished from any other brave young American.
0: One of the points that you make in the book is that both he and his brother drove a great distance when they enlisted because they specifically did not want attention to follow their pursuits. Exactly. Senator, uh, did we do right by him, we meaning the government? I'm I'm so glad to have heard you say, and of course everybody in this room understands that his hero status is not altered one iota by the way in which he died. I, I must tell you that I'm awfully disappointed from afar, in the way it seems that his memory was treated by the Army.
1: The initial reports of Pat Tillman's death were terribly distorted, and a depiction was given that he was attacking an enemy on a ridge, and uh, he was awarded a Silver Star posthumously. The only reason why we found out the truth about Pat Tillman's death was because of his mother. His mother, Mary, was not satisfied with the version of events that the Army predicted. She literally bombarded my office and me with questions, and we put the Army's feet in the fire. I'm embarrassed, because I love the United States Army and I respect and revere it, but I'm embarrassed the way that that initial report was handled, and it's very unfortunate because, understandably, it has made Uh, particularly Pat's mother bitter uh, because of the distortion and the difficulty that they had in finding out the true facts surrounding uh, Pat's heroic death. Um, I I cannot excuse it. I cannot excuse it except to say that uh, I feel terrible particularly for members of his family. In the chapter
0: titled uh, Diligence, and you've you've already invoked the name of this individual and he's, he's, he's one of my favorite historical figures. Uh, You write about a a young man who, on his third attempt, managed to be accepted into a a military academy and alerts his father to that circumstance, and Dad writes him a letter. I want to quote it in part, if you don't mind, Senator. Uh, Dad says, with all the advantages you had, with all the abilities which you foolishly think yourself to possess, this is the grand result that you come up among the second-rate and third-rate class who are only good for commissions in a cavalry regiment. Now it is a good thing to put this business very plainly before you. Do not think I am going to take the trouble of writing you long letters after every folly and failure you commit and undergo. I shall not write again on these matters. And you need not trouble to write any answer to this part of my letter because I no longer wish to attach the slightest weight to anything you may have to say about your own achievements. That of course was uh, the father of one Winston Churchill. Uh, yeah. Your point.
1: And uh, by the way, his father later died of uh, uh, what we call it uh, STD, uh, and uh, and his mother was very well known for the multitude of affairs that that she had that she conducted in a very public fashion, uh, and yet the guy idolized his mother. Idolized his father, uh, did every manly uh, endeavor one can imagine, including fighting in the Boer War and being captured and, and escaping. Uh, but he, he was a fan- fantastic and fascinating man. And let me urge you if you go to London, there's this bunker underneath the Foreign Office for that when London was being bombed by the Germans during 1939 and 1940, and the British. Airmen performed in such incredible fashion in defending uh, England. Uh, He conducted business down in this bunker and it's only been in the last year that they've opened it up and uh, you can go and it's very modern. They've got these things you can put in your ear and and listen to his speeches and his statements. Two people in the 20th century had, I believe, the greatest command of the English language. One was Winston Churchill and the other was Douglas MacArthur. And uh, when you hear his speeches and his statements, you know, all I have to offer is blood, sweat, and toil. Uh, never before in the history of mankind. Talking about the Spitfire pilots of RAF, never in the history of mankind of so many owed so much to so few. I mean, incredible command uh, of the English language. And as a very uh, struggling author, I admire more and more his ability. And finally, could I, I, I'm over telling you this story, but everybody believed that Winston Churchill would just stand up in the in the House of Commons and give a speech off the cuff. He would re- he would write, and then he would revise, and then he would rehearse in front of a mirror for literally hours before he gave one of these speeches, which appeared to be so just sort of natural and off the cuff. Lesson to all of us politicians, I guess.
0: In the aftermath of the 7-7 attacks uh, in London on the, the, the tube stations, I was invited, uh, folks in this room know this, to do my program by the British tourism officials because they were uh, worried about the lack of Americans visiting. And they said, is there a particular location from which you'd like to broadcast your radio show, thinking I would say the Tower or Buckingham Palace, and I said the Cabinet War Rooms. So I was the only uh, radio uh, person who has broadcast live from that facility of which you are speaking, and I did so just a month ago. What an uh,
1: incredible experience.
0: On, Senator, in, in the same way that I've told everyone that they, they must visit the beaches of Normandy, I make the same point that you make about, uh, about Churchill. Uh, Churchill battled what, what he called his, uh, his black dogs. You write about one Abraham Lincoln and fighting his hypos, I guess is the, the way he pronounced it. What, if anything, do you make of the fact that here are two great figures who both battled bouts of depression?
1: You know, I, I've studied a lot of people's lives. I'm a student of history. Uh, in interest of full disclosure, I, you must uh, be told that I stood fifth from the bottom of my class at the Naval Academy. Uh, <laughs> my old, my old company, my old company officer, I'm sure, would attest that in America anything is possible. But. uh... uh it's interesting how many of these great men and women, men and women, suffered at times in their lives from deep depression that, that, that literally had these near-suicidal bouts uh, of depression. And I have not yet figured that out, why exactly that is, uh, but it certainly is an occurrence that is not just common to Lincoln and Churchill, but many other great figures that I have... Uh, That I have studied uh, throughout history. Uh, I guess you're going to get to him, but Eisenhower had also some very interesting uh, experiences with emotion as well. Speaking of emotion,
0: if if there were a particular line uh, that caught me by surprise in in the entire book, which I I read and appreciated, and I I wouldn't say either of those things if, if they weren't true, it was this Of all my memories of prison, many of which it may surprise the reader to know. I recall fondly, I think I, I, I dropped the book out of my Barca lounger, and when I what exactly about your, your, uh, your imprisonment do you recall fondly?
1: I was privileged to serve in the company of heroes. Those that I know best and love most are those that I spent time in Hanoi with. I was privileged to observe a thousand acts of courage and compassion and love and the communications that we built up with each other, which the Vietnamese tried to, to prevent us from doing, and the strengthening and the bonds. I, I, in the first book, I wrote about my weaknesses and failings. And if I did anything that could in any way be viewed as acceptable, it's because my comrades picked me up when I was down. They encouraged me, they gave me strength, and they forgave me. When I was first captured, I was very badly injured and finally they put me in a room with two American pilots. They literally saved my life. And later on, when I was under significant pressures for a variety of reasons, they are the ones that allowed me to come out with a shred of honor intact. So, uh, and, and And we did a lot of funny things together and we did a, a lot of... Enjoyable things after a couple few years last couple of years that we were there the Vietnamese allowed us to be in rooms of 25 or 30 uh, in each cell one Christmas. We did a, a Christmas carol in a, in a very funny way we would put on skits. I taught the history of the world uh, and uh, One day uh, and I finished teaching the history of the world in about two months pretty rapid pace given my knowledge <laughs> and and they said because we had classes in our rooms some guys taught math some guys taught language I taught history and they said well, I want you to teach it all over again I said oh, no you know this is why I could never be a teacher the first time you enjoyed it. anyway to make a long story short a guy one day uh, I got tired of teaching history so there was all this about 10 guys and I was teaching. I said look now today we're going to talk about the French and Indian war it took place in Calcutta India and the French and the uh, Indian blah blah and this guy, in fact, his name was Red Wilson, he graduated from Dartmouth, he raised his hand, he said, wait a minute, I thought the French and Indian War was in the United States, was in the college. I said, now you can teach this course. <laughs> I don't want to take for granted that,
0: uh, that, that folks know that aspect that you told in Faith of My Fathers about... John McCain having been offered the opportunity to leave the Hanoi Hilton and I hope you don't mind if I ask that you give us the short version of the offer and its rejection.
1: My father was named by Lyndon Johnson commander in chief of all the U.S. forces in, uh, in the Pacific, a very big responsibility including Vietnam. And uh, I talk about at the very end of the book uh, to see an order he had to carry out to bomb Hanoi while I was living there, very difficult for for a father, as you can imagine. Uh, anyway, they, because of my father's position, they offered me an opportunity to leave uh, with two other people because they would release uh, groups of like three prisoners every six months or a year for propaganda purposes. Our code of conduct says you go home in order of capture, and uh, I, I refused uh, their offer of release. In interest of full disclosure, I'm very grateful that I did not know the war was going to last another three years.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the story of the four chaplains and its significance to Senator John McCain.
1: Well, you know, there's a great controversy in American politics today that certain elements maybe have taken over the agenda of not only our Republican Party but of our national priorities, etc. cetera. Um, I think that there's a degree of intolerance in this country in certain areas. And basically, we talk about these four chaplains who trained together. One was a rabbi, the other two Protestant, and one a Catholic. And they were on their way to Greenland in World War II. And and they they had become good friends because they had trained together. And, And their ship they were on was torpedoed. And the last that was seen, uh, 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 there was not enough life jackets, all four of them gave away their life jackets, and the last that was seen of them was they were standing on the ship as it sank, holding hands, uh, uh, singing, it's a remarkable story. As men in lifeboats and floating in
0: the water pulled and swam away from the sinking ship, they beheld one last sight of the four men whose loving devotion to God and man, had saved many of their lives. When the Dorchester rolled over, the four men climbed up to the keel. There they stood, holding one another's hands, praying to their one God together as the water rose around them. Just before the ship slipped beneath the waves, the chaplains raised their arms in the air, still holding hands, and sang a sailor's hymn, ready to meet together their God. And yet, you're continually self-deprecating in the book about your writing abilities.
1: Well, my co-author and real talent is a guy by the name of Mark Salter. We have been together for 16 years. He's been my administrative assistant. He has great talent. And what we do is we, in the evenings, we sit down together and talk and go through this process of selection and then talk. And we put it on tape, and I write some, and he writes the best parts, and and then we put them together. And so... But it's interesting, when you work with somebody for so long, many of us have this experience, we're not only like brothers in many respects, but we think a lot alike. And so it's, it's very easy because we, we almost complete each other's sentences. Uh, it disturbs both of our wives very much, the, relation, the relationship that we have, I might add.
0: Senator, not everyone that you write about in the book is necessarily a, a household uh, word, and Ola McCarty seems to fall into that category. What a great story.
1: She was a woman uh, in the state of Mississippi who took in laundry uh, for all of her life, uh, invested her money wisely, and had some people in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who helped her invest. And she ended up near the end of her life with about $250,000, and she decided to do- donate it to the university, Mississippi Southern University. And she did. She'd never been to the school. She had never met anyone there. And she donated that money as her her commitment to providing an opportunity for others who would not, uh, uh, which to provide opportunities which she had never received. She was greatly honored for it. And uh, we try to write about people like her as well as Abraham Lincolns and the others of this world so that people will recognize. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be famous to exhibit character. You don't have to be famous. The only thing you have to have is a commitment to your ideals and serving causes greater than yourself.
0: Operation Overlord was about to get underway, and uh, Ike uh, records a statement for the troops that was broadcast at every point of embarkation. He says, among other things, soldiers, sailors and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Forces you're about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have strived in these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. What I did not know until I I read Character is Destiny was that, well, you tell the story, in his shirt pocket he held something else.
1: He he was very concerned about whether the Uh, invasion of Normandy would succeed or fail. It was, to this day, the largest military operation in history. Millions of men, thousands of ships, incredible uh, operation against a very heavily defended French coast. And all of you have seen the pictures of Normandy and the cliffs that they had to scale. Saving Private Ryan, I think, depicts uh, how incredible that challenge was and the carnage that took place. So Eisenhower was, and he had to delay for several days because of weather, the invasion. Make a long story short, the night before the invasion, he went to his quarters and he wrote two letters. One, congratulating all of those who, who took part in this magnificent and gar- gargantuan effort uh, for their success. And in the other letter, he wrote a letter of resignation, taking full responsibility for the failure of the operation. Now, my dear friends, in Washington, D.C. today, there is no one that I know, including this one, who would write out a letter of resignation for failure. And this is really about the kind of accountability that is missing in America today. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Eisenhower, including his poor standing at West Point in his class, uh, why he's one of my uh, particular heroes. Final
0: uh, uh, final comment or question from me about the book, and then I, I want to switch gears, and at some point we'll open it up to the floor. Uh, I will know, I will know, I will know.
1: when. Uh, and, I'd, and I'd be glad to talk about this whole torture issue, which Mike and I have a mild disagreement on, but we will. Uh, you read the clip files, I uh, said. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things that the Vietnamese... The Vietnamese knew that they were never going to win the war just very frankly as Zarqawi knows today in Iraq, that they're not going to win the battle on the battlefields of either Fallujah or Ramadi or Wei or um, uh, Chulai or any of the other places. In other words, Ho Chi Minh knew that where he was going to win the war in Vietnam was having the American people lose confidence and faith in our ability to succeed there, which is what happened. And I'd be glad to go through the history of the Vietnam War and whether we should have or shouldn't have, success or failure and all that. But the point is that they knew that they were going to win the war in Chicago, in Detroit, and New York, in Philadelphia, and San Francisco, and they did. And so they tried to use us not so much for military information because military information that we have is very limited but to get propaganda statements and anti-war statements and uh, tapes uh, and even films in some cases of us condemning our country and our involvement in the war. So one of the first things that would happen in an interrogation is that the guy interrogated would bring in a tape recorder and say now just make an anti-war statement saying that your country ought to get out of Vietnam, etc., and confess to being a war criminal. And, uh, you know, he'd say no, and he'd say, well, look, this will be anonymous. No one will know. No one will know that you made this, this confession. And uh, I, I'll never forget my first reaction to that interrogator was, I said, I will know. I will know whether I did it or not. So in the book at the end of it, we try to say that, you know, uh, I can't remember who the philosopher was, character is who you you are in the dark, I think is the the quote. All of us in life are tempted and all of us fail. I am a living example of that. But you also are privileged to know the difference between right and wrong. And there are many times in our lives where we are tempted to do something which we know is less than honorable. And that's something that we would not be proud of. And yet, at the same time, we know that no one will know it. No one would really know whether we cheated on a test, whether we were unfaithful, whether we uh, did something which is less than honorable. Well, the point is, as, as we say at the end of the book, you will know. You will always know. You will know. And that's why character is so important. It's a great book, Senator. A-
0: if I could just stay with the torture subject for, for a moment.
1: I was afraid of that.
0: By the way, that's pretty good staff work on your part. Uh, it, was, it was also, let me just defend myself if I may, it was a column in the Daily News in which I said I, for one, hope that John McCain runs for president in 2008. I think that's the way that going to happen. Thank you. Uh, what I – what I most – what I most admire – you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because we, 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 were, we were kicking around the, the McCain subject in the morning show just today, as a matter of fact, uh, and I was asked a question on the air, why the, uh, the infatuation with the McCain candidacy? And my response was because he takes orders only from his own conscience. I I love the fact, I love your independence, even when I disagree with you, I respect you for your independence, and I find it to be lacking uh, today in Washington. Uh, On the subject of torture, the question that I have as a layperson who lacks your military credentials, uh, why, if, if if it always yields unproductive information, Is it a recurring subject? Why are there people who apparently have expertise in interrogation who seem to always want to have it at their disposal?
1: I think because there is a near desperation in the Pentagon to try to get intelligence, to try to foil these attacks that are so insidious and so awful and so terrible and tragic that are inflicted upon young Americans. I, just before I came here, I saw the crawl on uh, CNN or Fox, I'm not sure which one. Uh, 11, 10 Marines were just killed this morning in Fallujah by an IED and in one blast. And so there's this, this, this incredible and understandable desire to catch some of these guys and find out where these bombs are being made, where these people are being recruited, where they come from. We've got to get this intelligence. So I understand that. I mean, my God, that's— we're talking about our most uh, precious asset. But I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was out in Minneapolis uh, speaking at a dinner. The proceeds went for the families of those who have been killed in Iraq. The guy there who asked me to go was a guy named General Vesey. He's not a name well known to you. He's in the Army for 46 years had a battlefield commission in World War II, uh, was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. At the, at, uh, he was in charge, he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we did, the, remember the invasion of Grenada? He was over at the White House with Reagan. They were being briefed up to the last minute, told about last minute communications. The invasion was going to take place at night. Reagan was sitting there and he said to General Vesey, he said, General, what are you going to do? And General Vesey said, I'm going to bed. Reagan said, well, I'm going to bed too. The next morning they got up and everything had gone well. The, the point is, This guy, 46 years in the United States Army, I said to him, General, what about this torture issue? He said, any information that we can find out could never ever make up for the damage that the image of the United States suffers throughout the world by doing it. I think that really very well epitomizes my my position on this issue. My friends, I travel a lot around the world, usually at your expense, and I can tell you and I can tell you that the image of the United States and the world is not good. The Abu Ghraib, which we could really talk about whether that was a matter of discipline or whether it was, which is a legitimate point. Right? Those films were showed on Abu Ghraib, Al Jazeera 24-7 for weeks and weeks and weeks. We're in two wars, one militarily, which I still believe we can win and prevail, and we, I'd be glad to talk about that more with you. But there's also a wharf of ideas and ideals, and and uh, and image, and I believe that the United States of America still remains the greatest hope of oppressed people throughout the world. We are a beacon of hope and freedom. We are an, uh, the example they want to follow, and we hurt that image when we do the kinds of things that, unfortunately, we have found out have been done. I'm sorry, Mike. For you don't long have to apologize. Answer, it's a great it's answer.
0: Thank you very much for that. Uh, I still regard this as, as my president, supported him in, in both of these cycles, worked for his father in an appointed capacity uh, in that administration. I'm very, very frustrated. I'm I'm supremely frustrated in their poor job of articulating what's going on and what the exit strategy is. I've alienated some of my own audience. You might find this interesting because, you know, mine is often the work of, of ideologues doing what I do for a living. And uh, on this Iraq issue, uh, I've alienated a certain of my own audience by saying that I'm one who believes there there does need to be some framework, some timetable, not hard and fast rules, call them goals for getting out. And what is most often offered to me in a soundbite from a caller, Senator McCain, is someone who'll call and say, well if we were to set a timetable today, we'll empower the insurgents. From my perspective sitting here, it looks like they're already pretty empowered. I'm not sure what that means. It'll empower the insurgency. But would would you please take a moment and speak to the end game?
1: I will, and I'll try to make it brief. I would just like to point out to you whether you agreed or disagreed with our involvement in Iraq, and I'd also be glad to talk about the colossal intelligence failure that was associated with uh, our rationale for going to war. But right now we are there. And if you look at Zarqawi's statements, not at mine, but Zarqawi's statements that he says, once we drive him out of Iraq, Americans out of Iraq, we're going to go to Europe and we're going to go to the United States. Vietnam was a terrible disaster and a defeat that took us a long time to recover from in a lot of ways. In fact, the last presidential campaign showed how close to the surface the wounds of that war still are. My God, we spent three weeks of a presidential campaign fighting over a war that took place 30 years ago. So uh, I believe that the consequences of failure are such that there's very little doubt that over time Iraq would become, even if it wasn't at the time, would become a training ground and breeding ground for Muslim extremism and straining of terrorists. I live on in a border state, my friends. People are coming across our border today with impunity, uh, and I think the benefits of success are enormous. If there's a flawed but functioning democracy in that part of the world where there's only one other, and that happens to be Israel, that's a democratically elected, that's going to have a very beneficial effect, I believe, on the other countries uh, around them. Have we made terrible mistakes? Yes. We have made very serious mistakes, and I could chronicle many of them for you. And we have paid a very heavy price for those mistakes in American blood and treasure. But I believe that there is an enormous amount at stake right now, and I think we need to prevail. And we are making some progress. But Americans should have been told from the beginning that it's long and hard and tough, rather than saying, mission accomplished, only a few dead-enders, you know know all the quotes, Uh, uh, they're in their last throws. all all of those, uh, because I think it heightened expectations, therefore, when it didn't turn out as many predicted, that there was great disappointment and frustration.
0: When one member, sorry for the long answer, but not at all important issue. When, when when a member of of Congress refers to another member of Congress uh, who served his country honorably as a coward, it's an outrage.
1: It's an outrage, and it's also a symptom of the bitter partisanship that exists in our nation's capital today on both sides. Uh, I have been there for a long time, some believe too long. But the fact is that I have never seen such character attacks, such impugning of integrity, uh, such bitter uh, entrenchment in positions so that we can't reach across the aisle and do things that the American people want us to do. And that's why the approval ratings are so low of Congress. If talks about the president's low approval rating, look at Congress's uh, ratings with, with the American people. So, if I were uh, you, I would strongly advise you condemn this kind of behavior, and you applaud people who do reach across the islands to try to work uh, in a bipartisan fashion on issues that don't lend themselves to partisanship. And so. All I can tell you is that I think that the next election could be a very interesting one.
0: Well, let's go to elections. Let's look over 06 and go right to 08. Can a non-ideologue capture the Republican nomination in 08?
1: Well, I'd like to start out, if you don't mind, by asking your sympathy for the families and mothers of the state of Arizona, because Barry Goldwater from Arizona ran for President of the United States, and Morris Udall from Arizona ran for President of the United States. And Bruce Babbitt from Arizona ran for president of the United States. And I from Arizona ran for president of the United States. Arizona may be the only state in America where mothers don't tell their children that someday they can grow up and be president of the United States. So So I ask your sympathy. You might remember in the last campaign there was some conversation about me being vice president of the United States. It wasn't clear which party, but I may remember that conversation. I was on Jay Leno and Leno said, well, Senator, what about you being vice president? I said, you know, I said, Jay, you know, I spent all those years in a North Vietnamese prison camp, kept in the dark, fed scraps. Why the hell would I want to do that all over again? The I I in, in short answer to your question is I don't know, and that's why I was going to wait until after the election in order whether to make a decision or not as to whether to uh, run again. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very tough business. It's not beanbag, and uh, I would have to uh, think it through for, for quite a period of time if I wanted to. And. I think the 06 election will give us a better idea of what the American people's priorities are, and whether my particular positions on some issues are in keeping. I'm very, for me, I'm very well aware, my dear friends, that I may be in a minority in in the country by saying we have to see the Iraq thing through. I'm not going to change my position on it. I just tried to explain to you how important it is, I think it is that we win. It may be by Next November, that overwhelming majority of American people strongly condemn our presence there. That obviously would have some effect, for example.
0: There's, a, there's an author based in Philadelphia who has written a book, Flying. Uh, and it, it asks the following question Why, if there are common denominators among those adherence to radical Islam, race, gender, religion, ethnicity, and yes, appearance, why must we ignore those factors at our borders and our airports? First of all, do you know the book?
1: I, do, I, do, I, do, I, I know the book. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. It's one of the great works. I think it's up for a Pulitzer, as I recall. Um, this is a difficult balance because we know in our history, and not too distant history, there have been people who have been discriminated against because of the color of their skin. We know that. And we really want to avoid any return to that kind of treatment of American citizens. So you have to treat this issue with great care. Now, if there is a description of somebody who, you mentioned, Muslim, young, blah, 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 and that's out on the wires, and they want to stop somebody that looks like them, that's one thing and we would all approve of it. But do you stop every young Muslim appearing person that goes to an airport? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. Or, or a checkpoint. So I think it's something that you have to have some kind of a very careful balance. And could I make one more comment? There's two interesting events that have taken place recently. One is the bombings in the subway in England. Our traditional belief that the Muslim extremist who was willing to take his own life was some kid who in Pakistan, Karachi was on the street and poor and uneducated and they took him off the street funded by Saudis, which is happening today, teach them to want to hate and want to destroy America. That was our stereotype of the terrorist. And you also saw in France these riots that, that have been going on right now. So what I'm saying is the challenge is much broader than we thought it was in when we categorize who is going to be a terrorist and who's going to commit uh, these acts. These these young men that did the London bombing had been brought up in England. They had a fairly good education. They had a fairly good opportunity. Now in France obviously it's a frustration because there's no opportunity for them uh, that live in these ghettos in Paris. But I'm just saying that the dimensions of the challenge we face of the threats of terrorism are broader than we might have first expected after 9-11.
0: final question from uh, yours truly, and then a a few from the audience. Uh, There's a gentleman in the room who's a listener of mine, and his name is Colin Hanna, and he was on the front page of of USA Today within the last two weeks. Where are you, Colin? Just wave your hand. Right back there. Uh, He's the individual senator behind this uh, very serious effort to build a fence all along the border in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I sort of chuckled when I heard it, then I went to the website, read some of the data. There's a lot of support in my audience for the notion you are in one of those border states, respond to this issue of uh, porous borders.
1: Well, Colin, you are correct when you say that uh, our borders are unprotected. And I don't know how one can assert that we're winning the war on terror if someone can come across our border at will. And that's basically the case certainly on the Arizona-Sonora border today. More and more people coming across the border have been identified by the Attorney General of the United States as, quote, from countries of interest, countries of interest. So it is a very big problem. Where you and I probably part company is I don't think you need a wall all the way across those hundreds of miles because they're just areas where they won't come across. But we can use and are beginning to use UAVs, lasers, and high-tech equipment where we can surveil our border far more effectively than building a fence all the way across. And by the way, Colin, you'd have to give us the price tag associated with that, and would those billions of dollars be better spent on something like UAVs that can control follow the border? And second area where we are probably in disagreement, my friends, it's an issue, to a large degree, of supply and demand, okay? Fifteen years ago, we declared a war on drugs. Remember that? By God, we're going to stop those drugs coming across our border. You remember that? Today, the price of an ounce of cocaine on the street in Phoenix is less than it was 15 years ago. Why? Because people want to put drugs into their bodies, and so there's going to be a supply. And why is it that people are coming across our border? Because they can't feed themselves where they are and their families, and they're going to go someplace where they can do that. So we need a guest worker program. There are jobs that Americans won't... Every, every time I have a town hall meeting in Arizona, I say, anybody here, I'll pay you $50 an hour if you'll go pick lettuce in Yuma, but you gotta stay there for the whole season. My friends, I have yet to take anybody, anybody take me up on that offer. So the point is, we need a guest worker program. The President and I are in total agreement, but it has to be an orderly system where someone would acquire a tamper-proof visa which then would be eligible for him to match up with a willing employer we can we can do that and finally and i've and i'll stop with this there's 11 million people who are already here in our country who have come here illegally the big question is is what you do about those people and that's going to be the source of one of the greatest debate those who want to send them back to the country that they came from i'd like to see how you do that i just like to see how you achieve that, but we should by no means have an amnesty, nor should we reward them for having come to this country illegally. Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirkanish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at smirkanish.com.